this morning uh, to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> if you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, uh, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now, <clears throat> and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today, and, and then bring it with you next time. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what we have been able to express to you in our, our verbal worship of you, uh, the giving that we've also done. And Lord, we've come here also to receive from you and to hear your voice and to be uh, discipled by you, to receive your wisdom, your input in our lives. And we're in a world that is full of voices without and within. And they clamor and they clamor and they clamor online and offline and in person and all these messages. And we're so thankful that you want to speak to us supremely, powerfully. And we pray that you would meet with us and take uh, these simple words in your book and that you would speak to us through them and bless us. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this morning I want to start a, a new series on Sunday mornings that I have entitled uh, Gleanings from uh, Genesis. And as most of you are aware, on Sunday nights uh, for 35 years, we've gone through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation on that service, uh, a, a chapter or two or a few chapters at a time. I don't know how many times we've been through the Bible now in the course of, of these years. And, and though in that uh, uh, learning and studying the Word of God on the Sunday nights, though I, I think it's uh, very substantive, um, in, in order to make adequate progress on that journey through the Bible, it still has to be an overview. And so what happens is we do this overview of the passage, and there are all of these incredible nuggets that are found in the books that we studied that really warrant more time, and they warrant more uh, development. But that format doesn't allow uh, for that to happen, or we'd be bogged down and, and never make our, our way through uh, the Scriptures as, as a whole. And as a result of that, in this series in Genesis, I want to um, make these kind of passages our focus, passages that have been instrumental and foundational for me in my Christian life, and passages that are important that every single Christian understands, and that it's a part of our uh, relationship with God. Subjects like uh, the creation of man, uh, the, the fall of man, the flood, uh, wrestling with God, going back to Bethel. And some of the subjects that we'll look at will be theological, and some of them uh, will be highly theological, some of them will be highly uh, devotional. All of them will be a combination uh, of the two. 
Fairly recently, a prominent, very prominent and influential younger pastor, he created quite a stir within Christianity in the United States and really worldwide when he proposed that we as Christians unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and then further declared, and I quote him, when he said, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. Well, it, it, it's uh, jaw-dropping uh, that any Christian would say that, much less a pastor would say that. Uh, one of the many problems with that is that it completely contradicts not only uh, New Testament teaching, but even the teaching of Jesus Himself. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, declares concerning uh, the Old Testament Scriptures and their relationship uh, to uh, Jesus, that the volume of the book, both Old Testament and New Testament, is written of Him, that is of Jesus. Jesus plainly declared to the religious leaders of His day, He said, you do search the Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of Me. You look at the Old Testament Scriptures and all they are to you is the do's and don'ts and this and that, but they're all about me supremely. And to miss me in the Old Testament is to miss the entire supreme focus of the Old Testament. You remember when Jesus on the day of His resurrection, later in the day on that Sunday, He's walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus, as He be, began to speak into their confusion, we're told in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, He that is, Je is Jesus expounded to them in all the Scriptures concerning uh, Himself. John chapter 5, verse 46, again Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders, if you had believed Moses... Uh, that's the Pentateuch. That begins with Genesis. If you had believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. And the reason that I take the time uh, to establish this at the beginning of the series is that because there is a significant number of people and even a significant number of Christians who are completely convinced that the Old Testament is all about God the Father and the New Testament is all about Jesus and don't have the slightest idea that the entire book is about uh, Jesus, uh, looking forward to Him and then recording uh, Him coming and, and so forth. In the New Testament and the Old Testament, in terms of the focus of Jesus, they're completely united in, in all of this. There's an old saying that I think is important to at least here in life as a Christian and really worthy of, of committing to memory. That speaks to what we're talking about now and, and uh, concerning the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and it goes like this uh, The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. They are absolutely intertwined in their message and, and what they're about. The fact of the matter is, is that nobody, uh, no matter how steep they are in the New Testament scriptures, Nobody can fully appreciate Jesus, not His life, not His teaching, not His death, not His burial, not His resurrection, uh, independent of the Old Testament Scriptures. 
Additionally, without an understanding of the Old Testament uh, Scriptures, there'd be a whole world of things that we would live our lives as Christians and otherwise in complete ignorance uh, concerning. Uh, concerning the book of Genesis, the uh, name uh, Genesis is a Greek word and, and it means origin or beginning. And without even a knowledge of Genesis, we'd be completely in the dark about the origin of the universe, of the heavens, of the earth, of plant life, of animal life, of man, God's institution of marriage, of the origin of evil and sin, the origin of death, the origin of multiple languages, of nations, government, and so forth. You simply cannot make any ultimate sense of the world that we live in apart from the historical account that is given to us in the book of Genesis. You cannot even begin to understand it otherwise the world around us. You cannot process all of it properly. We could not even hope to navigate life and our place in the universe safely and wisely without the revelation that is found here. And, and we would live our lives completely ignorant concerning uh, the meaning and the purpose of life. In other words, if we do not understand the beginning of something, whether it is a play, or whether it is a movie, or whether it is a novel, then it will be impossible to fully understand uh, the place and the plot that we find ourselves introduced into in terms of human history. And then how much more concerning the universe and concerning life and concerning the circumstances uh, of life. Without knowing the beginning, without knowing the origin, we would just be living life and just blindly flailing away at it without any real understanding of what we find ourselves in the middle of. And our flailing would not just be spiritual, but it would be physical, it would be emotional, it would be mental. As one novelist uh, wrote, <clears throat> uh, he said, if you don't know uh, where you've come from, then you don't know where you are. And if you don't know where you are, then you don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, uh, you're probably uh, going wrong. And there's a lot of truth to that uh, statement. In the beginning, again, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's quite an opening sentence to a book. Uh, I mean, it's a remarkable uh, sentence. You, if you were to Google or if you read these kind of things and you were, you know, into literature and all, which is worth being involved in, if you were to look at uh, what do uh, the experts on all of this consider to be the best opening lines in, in literature, in the world, and they list those kind of things for, for our curiosity. Always at the top or near the top is Charles Dickens's book, uh, The Tale of Two Cities. And it reads like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Well, you read something like that, it's got you right from 
the opening sentence. There's other examples that are given on these kind of lists. George Orwell, if you're familiar with his work, um, 1984, it begins in this way. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Wow! I mean, you're not going to stop there when you read a line like that that starts the book. Uh, uh, Ralph Ellison, who wrote The Invisible Man, he opened that book with, I am an invisible man. There isn't any little boy or young boy that reads that opening line and his mind doesn't explode with anticipation at what might follow. Uh, Ford Maddox Ford, he wrote a book called The Good Soldier, and it, began with, it begins with the line, this is the saddest story I have ever heard. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in the opening line of his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, he began it this way, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> And I mean, all of these lines, they're literary uh, marvels, but nothing approaches Genesis 1-1. And not only in terms of arresting uh, our attention, but also uh, with how it immediately overwhelms the reader with the implications of the truth of that opening line, because unlike these other books, uh, when the opening line of the book of uh, uh, the opening line of the Bible is an opening line uh, not of fiction, but of, of nonfiction. In Genesis 1-1, God himself provides us with a first-hand account of creation. The creation of the heavens, the earth, everything that is in, the, in them, including uh, man. He doesn't uh, supply us with, in the opening sentence, kind of a theory, uh, a postulate, uh, some food for thought. It's not introduced in, in any way like that. This is introduced a, a, as God's eyewitness testimony uh, to the events. And because this is God's eyewitness account of the event, uh, the person who has absolutely zero education uh, it, 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 but accepts the truth of Genesis 1-1, knows more about the origin of the heavens and the earth than the most brilliant scientist or the most brilliant philosopher who does not. And as someone might uh, complain and say, well, all of this is just simply circular reasoning on your part. I mean, here you have God declaring himself to be the creator of the heavens and the earth, and we're being asked to believe it simply because he has uh, declared it. So in order to convince me, in order to move me related to the subject, you're going to have to supply me with independent first-hand uh, accounts of the same event. Well, if, if that's your demand, you've got a problem, because only God was present at, at the event, and he's upfront about it. Uh, when the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, writes to us and says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things that are visible. The writer of the book of Hebrews is not saying that those who believe in the Bible's account of creation do so on the basis of blind faith. 
He is saying that we accept it by faith for the simple reason that we were not present to witness it. There is only one eyewitness account of the creation of necessity, simply because there is only one eyewitness present at the time, and that was God Himself. And this is not, uh, not only the only eyewitness account we have, it is the only eyewitness account we can have. And this is a fact that God brought up to Job and he would bring up to anyone else that wants to protest uh, related to the issue. And you remember when Job was pretending he was God and questioning God and asking all these questions of God, and then finally Job goes silent and God begins to talk to him. And he posed the question to Job in Job 38, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job couldn't break the silence. No human being can ever break that silence. Only God could break that silence and give us the revelation that he has supplied to us. And one of the things that's interesting and I think refreshing is that God is unflinchingly dogmatic and unapologetic uh, on all of this for the simple reason that he alone was and is not only an eyewitness to all of it, but he is the, uh, was and is the actual creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, there are very powerful witnesses to that truth, which we'll talk about in just a, a moment or two. I want you to notice as well that the heavens and the earth and all that are in them, including life, uh, they had a, be a beginning. And uh, nobody in their right mind would dispute this. You have the second law of thermodynamics and uh, witnesses to the fact that the uh, world and the universe that we live in is not eternal. It cannot be eternal. Uh, it had to have a beginning because it is winding down and uh, slowly winding down. Don't be concerned uh, about cashing in your IRAs or uh, running up debt on your credit card in, in the hopes that it's going to be anytime soon. Uh, the scientists estimate that if it's left to itself, the universe will wind down in 10 to the 26 power years uh, and that it will die uh, in a uh, heat death. And so everyone acknowledges uh, what God states plainly here, and that is the universe is not eternal, but it had a beginning. Notice as well that the heavens, the earth, and all that are in them began uh, when God created them. And the word created, as it's there in, in that verse, uh, in the, the Hebrew word that is used there is an interesting one. It's the word bara. In the Hebrew language, there are different words that are used for creating something out of something, taking raw materials, clay or whatever, and you then create something out of existing material. The word bara is distinct from all of those words in that it means to create something out of nothing. And that Hebrew word bara, as it's used in the Bible, it is only used and always used only uh, of God, because only He can do that. Uh, as human beings, we can create all kinds of things, but we need some other section and portion of creation to be given to us in order to create out uh, uh, of, 
of those uh, things, those materials. He created all that we see of creation from nothing. He created everything that you will ever see in the course of your life with a naked eye, with a telescope, with a microscope. He created it out of nothing. And not only did He create it out of nothing, but He created it by speaking it into existence. How big is this God? How awesome is this God to be able to do that, to create out of nothing and to do it by speaking it into existence. Amazing. John Phillips, in his uh, commentary on Genesis, he wrote uh, in this regard. He said, some years ago, researchers announced that they had been able to create artificial protein in the laboratory. I'm always tempted to say the laboratory because I've watched those movies. So however he meant it, laboratory or laboratory. And he goes on and he says, protein is the basic building block of life. So the achievement uh, took the scientific world by storm. Uh, Saturday evening, Post interviewed a number of notables to get their reactions. Dr. Vincent Alfrey of the Rockefeller Institute declared, this is the biggest story of the century. A famous biochemist said, this century will go down in history as the century when life ceased to be a mystery. Life is only chemistry. Uh, a British scientist was uh, confident that in a few more decades, one would see scientists creating life, and he confidently asserted, I no longer find it necessary to believe in God. Well, Saturday Evening Post, back when journalism represented both sides of a position, uh, they interviewed uh, some uh, Christians related to all of this, churchmen, including Monsignor uh, George A. Kelly, who was a spokesman at the time for Cardinal Spellman of the Archdiocese of New York. And he was uh, unimpressed with the boasting of the scientists. And he declared, when a biochemist is able to create matter and energy out of nothing, uh, then I should like to talk to him. And he makes the point, there's a world of difference between speaking something into existence out of nothing and fashioning out of uh, raw materials that have already been provided to you. I want you to notice as, as well that when the, began, the beginning began, God already was. And so He was there to begin the beginning of all that had a beginning. And uh, that is everything but Him. And the fact that God created all things differentiates Him from His creation. And there are two great categories within all of the universe. And there, uh, everyone fits into one of those two categories. And the first category is Creator. And, uh, and that is God. And then everything else fits into the second category uh, of, of creation. And the creation always owes a debt to the Creator, the debt of the lesser to the infinitely greater, that is, to God Himself. And what we owe to God as Creator as a result of being His creation is uh, our worship and, and our, our service. Any human being 
who worships or serves anything of the creation, worships anything other than the creator of the creation, uh, that person uh, is engaged in an irrationality because the creator is always greater than his creation. Paul brings it out in the New Testament, in the book that we just recently finished in Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. He said, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God, that is the truth of his existence, uh, for a lie, and that is that God doesn't exist, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Sometimes people will ask, what was God doing before He created uh, the heavens and the earth? And the fact of the matter is we really have no revelation of that. We know certainly that God is eternal and He existed before anything that He created. Uh, the oldest uh, kind of, in terms of chronology, uh, oldest verse in the Bible is not really Genesis 1.1. It is John 1.1 that speaks of Jesus within the Godhead and the existence before even the creation of, of anything. But in terms of uh, what uh, He was doing and and, uh, and before the creation of the, the heavens and the earth, we have no revelation in Scripture of that. Maybe we'll know in heaven, but personally, I, I don't have a problem with not knowing that. I figure that God uh, tells us what we need to know, and uh, I don't have any problem with mystery in a relationship with God, not understanding everything. Uh, the, uh, the fact that any time you're going to have uh, the infinite, that is God, in a relationship with the finite, that is man, then you're going to have to get used to mystery because we can only follow God on any subject that we might choose to talk with Him about only so far and then, and then uh, drop uh, off. And so he reveals to us what we need to know. Now, is it interesting? Uh, uh, John Calvin is reported to have had an answer for that, that question uh, when a man asked John Calvin what God was doing before he created uh, the heavens and the earth, and apparently, mockingly, uh, John Calvin is alleged to have replied, uh, he was heating up hell for those who would ask such questions. So clearly John Calvin got off the wrong, out of the wrong side of the bed that morning, and, and, uh, and, the, and the, the more accurate answer, actually, and the more gracious answer is, is that we simply do not know. It is a mystery, and God has not given us that revelation, and only He could. Now, in this opening uh, verse, God does a, it's, it's, I think it's seven words in the Hebrew, ten words in the English. He covers a lot of ground in ten words. I mean, in the opening verse, God flatly refutes uh, 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 virtually all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin of the world and the meaning of life. He, he clearly refutes atheism because uh, it, it avows the existence of God. He uh, refutes uh, pantheism, the idea that God is uh, another name for everything, because God is differentiated here from an infinitely greater than what He has created. Uh, it refutes uh, polytheism because one God created all things. It refutes materialism because all material had a beginning. 
It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. And it refutes evolution uh, as a, an explanation for the existence of the universe because God created uh, all things. And God has done all of that in just one sentence in terms of providing clarity to mankind about what this world is about that we find ourselves in, in the middle of. I, I, one time I heard a, a pastor, a Jewish pastor, Christian, and um, he spoke about a letter that had been sent to him uh, by uh, someone who uh, was displeased with him in some way. And the woman wrote this letter uh, as a word from God to him. And she wrote page after page after page after page after page uh, of it. And, and after he read it, and then he responded to her, uh, he said, I don't believe uh, that this is from God at all, because it doesn't take uh, God that long to say something. And there's certainly an element of truth uh, in that, as you look at Genesis 1, uh, 1, 1. Now, some of what we see here in, in this uh, single verse is it's amazing what it reveals to us about God, uh, that He has no beginning, that He's eternal, uh, that He's um, uh, omnipotent, He's all-powerful, He's omniscient, He knows everything, He created everything, He knows everything. He's omnipresent, He's everywhere all at once. He is clearly very wise, He is clearly very uh, creative, He is self-existence. Uh, self-existent. He is not a, a part of the creation. He is infinite, and He is personal. It isn't an impersonal force that created the heavens and the earth. It was a personal God who did so. It's interesting to me in this uh, verse that God does not argue His existence here. Uh, he simply states it uh, matter-of-factly. And apparently, as you would, certainly I would expect of God, as all of us would expect of God, He is very, very confident in His existence. Whatever anybody else might be thinking. God never takes a trip to Sedona or to Colorado to try and find Himself. Or to, to question who He is and does He really exist and what is the meaning of, of His existence. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that he doesn't need to lay out a case uh, to mankind for his existence because his creation does that for him. As the Holy Spirit put it through King David in Psalm 19, let me read you a handful of verses. David wrote, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Not just his, his existence, but his glory. And the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The voice of creation speaking to mankind about the existence of God. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber, and rejoices like a strong man uh, to run its race. Talking about the sun making its move across the, the horizon on a daily basis in, 
in the world. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to another, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, the, the psalmist is declaring that all of creation around us testifies to the existence of God. All that we see, with, again, with the naked eye, we see with the telescope, we see with the microscope, all of it is communicating to us that there is a God. You say, how does it communicate this? Because it, it, wherever you look in life, creation always speaks of a Creator. Whether you're talking about a house, whether you're talking about a bridge, whether you're talking about a watch, whether you're talking about a poem, whether you're talking about a painting, and any time we see any created anything, when we see these things, we realize that they didn't just happen. They exist because someone created them. There's always a creator behind any creation in life. And what is true, the Bible says, of a house or a watch is also true of the heavens and the earth. And as we look at the heavens and the earth and everything in them, they, it speaks of a creator. And in the same way, everywhere we look in life and we see design, we realize there is a designer behind that design. Design always testifies to the existence of a designer behind the design. Uh, and whether it's Mount Rushmore, or whether it's a jet plane, or whether it's a car, or whether it's an iPhone. I mean, no one would deny it. No one would claim that an iPhone is self-existent. Clearly, there's a designer behind it. And what the Bible declares in both Old Testament and New Testament is that what is true of that design is also true of the amazing design that we see all around us in the world. Again, the seasons, the four seasons in the year, the tides, the orbits of the sun and the moon, uh, the intricacies of the human body, the fact that any surgeon can, can uh, have any hope of being successful in a surgery or an engineer building anything, whether it's a bridge or building a building, all, all that we operate from in life is the recognition that there is a design to this universe that when we cooperate with it, we're going to do fine. But everybody acknowledges the design. And, and always in life, there's a designer behind the design. And even further, not only does creation and design speak of the existence of a creator and a designer, but just as the creator and the designer in every other area of life is greater than what they create and what they design. Uh, the heavens and the earth declare that God is greater than all of the creation by virtue of being the creator and the designer uh, of all that we see on a daily basis. And this is why, once again, it is foolish to worship uh, the creation because it is to stop always one step short of the progression. The Creator is always greater than the creation. And so our worship is due the one who has created everything and, and, and not the creation uh, it, itself. And this argument of, of, from creation and design, it's something that's so simple that a child can understand it, a child can speak it. 
Any person can understand it. Any person can speak it. And, and, and you should uh, use the argument as, as God does in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the argument from creation and design. Anytime you, want to, you enter into these kind of conversations with other people, and in entering into that is a case for the existence of God, you will never be disappointed uh, for having done so. And it is to simply give God, in that conversation with another person, what God wants to have in order to, to work with them. But no scientific discovery, no anything, is ever going to disprove the arguments of design and creation, because they're God's arguments, and, and they're simple. And somebody says, well, then, then who, uh, who created God? Nobody. I mean, he's, he's as upfront as can be related to things. That he existed when the beginning began. And that's his story. That's his account. Now, what, it, what a person's going to do with that, they're going to do with that. But there's no, no lack of logic in it. And certainly no absence of, of, of evidence. And you can spend all of your life uh, reading scientific journals, and feel free to do that. Or all of the books on evolution or on creationism and listen and watch the videos and all of these different things and uh, fully gorge yourself on the subject. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you'll come right back to this place. You'll come back to this argument and, and this, uh, this statement of fact from God related to the evidence for His existence. God considers this evidence for his existence to be so straightforward and so uh, indisputable uh, that in Psalm 14, verse 1, uh, he declares that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. From, from the vantage point of heaven, for a person to live their three score and ten or however many years uh, in this world and to see what we see on a daily basis with our own eyes, and to live, to live life and, and, then to, and then to conclude that there is no God, it, it, it's incomprehensible, again, from the vantage point of heaven. God says it, it, it is a very hard thing to go through life and, and to miss God. And, and the Apostle Paul is just as strong in the New Testament on the issue. Again, to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. Paul said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is the truth they suppress in unrighteousness? The existence of God. This is as old as the hills. Paul addresses it by the Spirit of God. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But Paul continues, interestingly. He said, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ah, now we come to the foundation. 
core of the denial of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Feudal thinking and dark hearts. A refusal to acknowledge the existence of the God of the Bible. Because if he truly is what he reveals himself to be, then logically I must make myself accountable to him. In obeying him and serving him and living for him and worshiping him and supremely entrusting in his son as my savior and as my uh, Lord. The real reason for the denial of the existence of God and a person offering the praise and the worship uh, that the uh, creation owes to the, the, the Creator is at, at its core, I still want to live a self-dominated and a self-directed life. Or there are sins that I like practicing that I don't want to give up for anyone, not even uh, for God. And behind all of the bluster and all of the arguments and all of the words from the vantage point of heaven, that is what is the core of the denial of all of this. And people can uh, convince themselves, they can fool themselves, but God is never fooled by any of it. Even Jesus himself revealed as much in John chapter 3 when he was talking with uh, Nicodemus, religious leader of the Jews. I'll read it to you beginning in John 3.16. Jesus said, For God so loved the world, he's speaking to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But it's important to remember, Jesus did not stop with that gospel. He moved on to speak of why people reject that gospel. He said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And he who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Don't ever be put back on your heels as a Christian or in intimidated over all of the words that just fairly uh, flood uh, every means by which words can be communicated. They just flood forth as a, a, a rationale for rejecting creation, rejecting the existence of God, rejecting God the Father, rejecting uh, Jesus Christ. But always to know uh, that at the core of all such rejection, once a person knows the truth, at the core of all of it is uh, this love for sin and self-will, and God knows it. And one day at the white throne judgment of Christ, uh, that will be revealed. 
as the true cause and the true source for all unbelief. The first chapter of Genesis is one of the most God-centered chapters in the Bible, and that's saying a lot. God is mentioned by name 32 times in the 31 verses. When you add uh, the use of personal pronouns, he's mentioned no less than 43 times in, in the 31 verses. And what I would like us to take away from this opening verse of the Bible is that no one will ever make any sense of life not, not on the macro, not on the micro, not on the universal, not on the personal level, unless we begin where the Bible does, with God and not with man. And if we begin with God and we work from God then uh, toward uh, man, uh, our understanding of the world, Uh, as a whole, ourselves individually, then our conclusions are going to be true, they're going to be wise, they're going to be safe. And to ask in every circumstance that we find ourselves in life, as it's modeled here in the very first verse of the Bible, in, in every circumstance, in every thought, every emotion, ask, what does God say about this in His Word, the Bible? And then to embrace that truth. But if we begin with man in an attempt to understand and define God with all of man's limitations, with all of man's theories, with all of man's uh, speculations, if we begin there in an attempt to understand and define God, we will have it exactly backwards. And the result will be confusion and ignorance and danger and deception. And the question always is, in every situation in life, of every emotion we feel, every thought that comes into our mind, what does God say? And to begin there, and never to begin with, what does man say? Or what do I think? What does God say is the starting point to true wisdom and, and to knowledge? And I don't know how much of this this morning blesses you, but it's where God begins His book, and it is a vital, vital truth that is ignored all around us in the world. Not by an unsaved world alone, but by many, many Christians, where every circumstance that comes our way, every feeling that we have, every thought that we have, every fork in the road, every decision, we begin with our own wisdom, We begin with the collective wisdom of people who are as severely limited in wisdom as we are. And that becomes the dominant influence, and then we work our way to God. And it's always to have it exactly backwards. It is to go to God first and receive what it is that He says on anything. And then we can safely work our way toward ourselves and toward our fellow man, and navigate the world that we live in day in and day out. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you need to come to Him as He is. And He is already your Creator. There's nothing you can do about that. 
There's nothing you can change about that. But it doesn't make you unique. Every human being that's ever existed, every human being that exists in the world today has God as a creator. But what I, I must then add to that in terms of my relationship with God is to make Him more than my creator. And that is to make Him my Savior and my Lord. Because that is what He is due. And as great as the gap is between the infinite and the finite, that is how great He is worthy of us making Him our Savior and our Lord. It is nothing anyone needs to do because they're put in the headlock and forced. It is our absolute privilege to be able to enter into a personal relationship with a God who created us and loves us and to do so by putting our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins because He is the Savior that pleases heaven. And ultimately, all that is going to matter on anything is what pleases heaven. And if you'd like to give your life to Jesus this morning and enter into a relationship with God, know Him more than just as a Creator, but as your Heavenly Father, to know Him as your God, your Lord, your Savior. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for. And then for all of us in this room, if you have a need for prayer in any area of your life. Don't take it out into the car alone to carry it alone, uh, just you and, you know, for another week. We're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Come forward and let somebody pray for you and uh, pray with you. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.